0: Jeez. Recorded live. Greetings, this is William Fink for Eli James on The Voice of Christian Israel. It is Sunday, June 21st. Eli won't be here today because he's en route back to Chicago from Binghamton, New York, where we attempted to have a Paul seminar yesterday, and the venue was canceled by the hall because they were nervous that they heard reports that there were anti-semitic people renting their hall to have a meeting there and and that is what happened yesterday i discussed it last night on the yahweh's covenant people program and for now i'll leave it alone i'm sure you'll all hear from israel eli about it next sunday today i have clinton emmerheiser here and we're going to talk about the women in the genealogy of christ Notably from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, Tamar, Rachab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who is the wife of Urias, who is alleged to be a Hittite, and we'll see the truth of that manner soon also. Isn't it odd that the only women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ have backgrounds which present challenges to us? That cannot be a coincidence. I believe that the real challenge is this. Whether or not we want to believe that Yahweh keeps his word, or whether or not we want to believe that Yahweh is a hypocrite. The judeo zionist Christians, or so-called Christians, they believe that Yahweh is a hypocrite. That he would tell us one thing, and yet do another. All of these women are, in one way or another, slandered, by many of the mainstream theologians and commentators, and even many in Christian Israel identity do likewise. I believe that Yahweh, the author of Life, History, and Language, even before all things come to pass, certainly allowed the scribes to set traps for us to see whether or not we would believe that He is true to His word. Tamar is called a whore by many, and so is Rachab. Ruth is called the Moabite, and what likewise Bathsheba. The wife of Uriah, who is called the Hittite, is esteemed to be a Hittite herself, or if not, then at least a race mixer. Everything is not what it seems. And these traps are indeed laid to separate those who truly study the word of Yahweh with an open heart and the surface readers of scripture who are quick to make accusations, thereby justifying their own fornicating immorality and alien-embracing tendencies. Emma Heiser, how are you doing today?
1: Oh pretty good. <clears throat>
0: I think um we should start by discussing Tamar because that's the chronological order. Okay. What what do you have to say for us about Tamar? Tamar the, the um well the, the the sort of wife of Judah or at least the mother of Perez and Sarah.
1: Well, Tamar uh, was a Shemite, and uh, according to the Book of Jasher, um, uh, Judah went to the house of Shem to get a wife for his half-breed sons, and, and uh, um, so uh, all of all of the uh, genealogy of Christ is pure. Uh, From the very beginning, there there is no uh, bastards in the line of Christ.
0: Yes, it's absolutely clear to me that Yahweh didn't permit Judah's half-breed sons to mate with Tamar. It just wasn't meant to be. And and the the fact that two of them died trying to mate with Tamar, it's fully demonstrable of that. Why would they die when they were about to bed this woman? This woman.
1: Uh, I I wrote extensively on that. Uh, I don't have all that stuff before me right now, Uh, but um, the one thing that should tip us off that the others, the the, uh, Ur, uh, Onan, and Shelah, uh, that they weren't uh, considered uh, true sons of Judah is because when... um, uh, Perez and Zero were born. they were uh trying to decide which one was first and second uh where where if the other sons were counted, uh, Perez and Zero would have been uh fourth and fifth
0: absolutely er onan and Shelah were not counted as the oldest son. It only mattered <clears throat> which was the oldest between Farez and Zarah. And that's clear in scripture. So it must be that Israel, the people, even though Judah had a Canaanite wife and three Canaanite sons, the people of the nation recognized only Pharez or Zarah as as which one would be the oldest.
1: And if that was true then, it's still true today and all these uh, half-breeds that's being born in Israel today are not counted.
0: Absolutely. And, and the um, Matthew even mentions Zara as the brother of Phares. But he obviously doesn't care too much for, um, you know, he only mentions Fares and Zara And why I mention Zara and not the other brothers also, or half-brothers, or however you want to term it. Many esteem Tamar to, to have been a whore. If that were truly the case, the last person she may have chosen to be her first customer was Judah, her father-in-law. Tamar simply wanted what she was entitled to. Women relied upon having children, especially male children, in order that having raised them, the children would in turn look after them in their old age. If Tamar didn't stand up for her own interests, there would be no tribe of Judah today. Evidence supporting this interpretation of Tamar's motivation. Is gleaned from a couple of places in Scripture. <clears throat> in the Book of Ruth, at four, fourteen, and fifteen, upon Ruth's being redeemed by Boaz, the women of the place said to Naomi, "Blessed be Yahweh, which has not left thee his, this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel." And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Likewise Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, when she conceived John the Baptist in her old age, proclaimed, as it is recorded at Luke 1.25, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among men. It was considered a disgrace in Israel to die without issue. And thusly, the daughters of Lot, who thought following the destruction of the cities of the plain, that it was only them and their father remaining in the whole world, did what they did, as they were recorded as saying in Genesis 19.32, that we may preserve the seed of our father. Tamar simply wanted to do what was right and to get what she was entitled to don't you think she 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 only wanted to she was entitled to children from Judah's family
1: well actually there there was a contract that that um Judah would um uh donate his seed uh um for her uh for her to have children and and that couldn't happen with the first three sons
0: Right, but two she, of them were struck dead, and the third one, Judah, was afraid would die too, so he didn't let her ha- let her have him.
1: And no doubt, uh, uh, Tamar understood that Judah was royal, and, and she knew what uh, if she bore children, she knew what they would be.
0: It it very well seems to be, and and she had um, seed coming, and Tamar played the harlot, and also behold. and and I'm quoting Genesis, the King James, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, now now they thought Tamar was with child by whoredom. They didn't realize that it was from Judah himself. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, I am with child. Judah had given Tamar his signet, and his staff. And and Judah said. Judah acknowledged them, and she, his bracelets and his signet and his staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, "She has been more righteous than I, because I gave her not to Shala. So Well, you'd
1: hardly call a righteous woman a whore.
0: Or, or a whore a righteous woman.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> Judah acknowledged that Tamar was a righteous woman because she only got what she had coming. If he had given her to Shua, and 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 Shoah had impregnated her, then Tamar wouldn't have been able to do anything about that. Had breed or not, but obviously Yahweh put it in Judah's heart not to do that.
1: Well, evidently Tamar didn't look forward to to Sheila.
0: Right. And 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 if if Shiloh was the only surviving son of Judah, then we evidently would have no legitimate tribe of Judah whatsoever. There would only be eleven tribes in Israel. Because Shiloh is absolutely excluded from the inheritance, the kingship fell to Pharez, the oldest of, of the Tamar's two sons. And and that right there. That, that is, a, um, is a reproach to all of the Universalists today who think that anybody could have the inheritance. Because Shelah never did anything behaviorally, so far as we can tell from Scripture, to exclude himself from the inheritance. A lot of the one seedliners think that Cain only um, exclu- was excluded from the inheritance because he was wrong for killing his brother. But what did Shelah do to be excluded? He didn't do anything and he was excluded. Well, he was a half-breed. That's why he was excluded.
1: Yeah, that automatically eliminated him.
0: Absolutely. And even though it's not mentioned in Scripture, it's absolutely clear that Sheila was, was eliminated. So we see that Tamar was not a whore. Tamar was a righteous woman getting what she had coming. and And it had to come according to Yahweh's plan, through Judah, and not through Judah's half-breed son. Scripture fully supports yeah,
1: Tamar's that. name actually means upright, so she lived up to what her name is.
0: Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Not when you um, lay aside the, the devices of man and actually look at the Scripture and assess the situation through a scriptural viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I run into this uh, thing of uh, Tamar being called a whore down in Tennessee about uh, 12 or 13 years ago. I went down there to a Feast of Tabernacles meeting, and there was a guy by the name of Scott Vaught there, and and he was calling Tamar a whore, and he was saying that uh, uh, David and Jonathan were homosexuals because they loved each other and, and all kinds of accusations like that at that meeting.
0: Right. Scott Vaught is the source of that Ephraim Skepta, um belief of Buddy Johnson's, isn't he? Right. And Scott Vaught is the guy that claims to be able to read Paleo-Hebrew manuscripts. And everybody... The funny thing of it is
1: he's never um, showed any of his uh, Paleo-Hebrew manuscripts. Uh, where's he hiding them?
0: Right every archaeologist in the world knows that we don't have any <laughs> everybody except scott pot
1: and and a few a few uh, ignorant followers of his
0: yeah that's just that whole situation is is incredible i i I'll I'll never understand the um I'll, I'll never understand that I'll, I'll never understand the, the Ephraim scepter heresy situation at all.
1: But Judah, was to re, uh, Judah was to receive the scepter. and, yes, and he was. And Tamar knew that, and, uh, uh, and, and something a lot overlooked, uh, as both Perez and Zerah were both royal.
0: Okay, on to, um, to Rahab it. Hopefully we've straightened out a little of the the Tamar situation. Rahab is said to be a whore. What do you think about that? Or a a harlot? A Rahab? Yes.
1: Um. I I, I don't remember her being uh, called a whore.
0: Well, a harlot, a whore.
1: Oh, yeah. She's called, um. Um. Yeah, she's called a harlot, that's right. Uh I took
0: the liberty of updating the King James language. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, right. Uh <laughs> you kinda caught me off uh, guard there a little bit. Yeah, she was she was accused of being a harlot. And and it's evidently a mix up in uh the um of a term that means to sell. And uh uh I uh, wrote on that in uh, lesson, uh, uh, Watchman teachings, letter uh, 120, and, and I wrote that uh, uh, a, a quite an extensive article on that. Uh, anything you want to cite there, Bill would be well, all right.
0: Well, let me let me start by I'm going to read the actual um, account of of Rahab in in Joshua from Joshua 2, 1 to 24. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now that word for harlot is zonah in the Hebrew, and and we're going to keep that in mind. And it was told, the king of Jericho saying, Behold, there came men in hither to hither hitherto night of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. Now why would he send directly to Rahab when they didn't tell him that the men were at Rahab's? Saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee which are entered into thine house. For they be come to search out all the country. And the, women, and the woman took the two men and hid them and said, Thus, there came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass, about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot I not, I do not know, is what's being said there. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. But she had brought them, after she told them that, up to the roof of the house and hid them in the stalks of flax which she laid in order upon the roof. Now, what's significant about having enough flax on the roof of your house to hide two men? That's a lot of flax. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us. So right there, she, she admits some kind of inspiration from the Holy Spirit, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord, or how Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And and it goes on, and it shows that Rahab knew this, what was going to become of the children of Israel, and and she protected them, and and that definitely shows inspiration from Yahweh, and and the question is, is she really a harlot? And that word, that Hebrew word, zonah, as you show in in your Watchman's teaching letter number 120, actually indicates or, or um, shows that it, it describes a woman who is in some sort of business of trade, does it not?
1: Uh, right.
0: And And it's confused with the word zoon, which is another Hebrew word that's very similar.
1: Well, she was she was evidently not, uh, not only an innkeeper, but that flax uh, kind of tells a story that uh, she might have been in the, uh, or at least the family might have been in uh, the uh, linen business because linen is made from flax, uh, uh, you know, along with linseed oil for paint and and various other things that's uh, used for manufacturing. And uh, to, uh, to have hid two men under flax uh, would have taken a substantial amount of flax. Uh, so uh, I'm sure the flax just didn't happen to be there by accident.
0: Right, absolutely not. There was a lot of flax on, on the roof of Rahab's house, and it was for a purpose, and an innkeeper would require a lot of flax in, in order to make linens. However, we're gonna, I'm going to quote from your watchman's teaching letter 120, in the AV in this passage says in verses one to three of, of the the chapter of Joshua two which I just quoted from, and Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab. A harlot's house. This this is from Adam Clark, is it not?
1: Yes, it's right.
0: Commentary to Bible. A harlot's house. Harlots and innkeepers seem to have been called by the same name, as no doubt many who followed this mode of life from their exposed situation were not the most correct in their morals. This is Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible, and and I continue with it. Besides, there is more than presumptive proof that this custom obtained among the Israelites themselves, even in the most polished period of their history, for it is much more reasonable to suppose that the two women who came to Solomon for judgment relative to a dead child in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 forward, were innkeepers than that they were harlots. It is well known that common prostitutes from their abandoned course of life, scarcely ever have children, and the laws were so strict against such in Israel, and and Adam Clark cites Deuteronomy 23.18, that that if these women had been of that class, it is not at all likely they would have dared to appear before King Solomon. All these circumstances considered, I am fully satisfied, the term zona in the text, which we translate harlot, after the Septuagint translators and the New Testament authors should be rendered tavern keeper or innkeeper or hostess. It is therefore likely that persons who could not escape apprehension and death without the miraculous interference of God should in despite of that law, which at this time must have been so well known unto them, go to a place where they might not expect, where they might expect not the blessing but the curse of God. In spite, in this sense, the Chaldee Targum understood the term. He's citing the Aramaic Targums of the Sethurgeon, and he says, Adam Clark says that they render this word tavern keeper, and they considered Rahab to be an innkeeper or a tavern keeper. To all of this may be added that as our blessed Lord came. Through the line of this woman, it cannot be a matter of little consequence to know what moral character she sustained. As an innkeeper, she might be respectable, if not honorable. As a public prostitute, she could be neither. And it is not very likely that the providence of God would have suffered a person of such a notoriously bad character to enter into the sacred line of his genealogy. But if she kept a house of entertainment, the persons under her roof were sacred. According to the universal custom of the Asiatics. And I have to say that this, Adam Clark is right in this, and it's not only a universal custom of the Asiatics, but it's also very often mentioned in the Greek literature of the playwrights such as Euripides and Aeschylus that people, visitors from strange lands who are admitted into a city to visit, are kept sacred. They are protected entities. And, and a guest in your house is a protected entity. He's considered sacred and untouchable. And that's a tradition in, in Egypt. Be kind to strangers because in Israel, where, where the commandment says be kind to strangers because you were a stranger in Egypt. Clark goes on to prove that the word zun and zona in the Hebrew mean a woman who who engaged in trade, and that that was used to describe an innkeeper. But the Septuagint translators, when they translated these words into Greek, they translated it into the word porne. And porne is the common Greek word for a prostitute. But it is related to a Greek word poruo, which means to engage in trade. And it seems to me, and it seems to Adam Clark in his commentary, that the Septuagint translators misunderstood the meaning of the word porne to be equivalent to the Hebrew word zoon, which meant a woman that engaged in any kind of trade and not merely prostitution. Is, is that the way you see it, Clifton?
1: Well, that, that's, uh, yeah, I understood what Clark was saying, and I, I, I agree with Clark on that.
0: Now, I'm going to read from Josephus, and, and as we see, the Septuagint translators translated this word porne, and the New Testament authors followed them, but we don't really know how James, in his epistle, who calls Rahab a a porne, or, or what we would think to be a prostitute, and how Paul, when he wrote Hebrews, who does the same thing, we don't really know what was in their minds when they wrote that word porne. So we're not really revising the New Testament writers. We're just interpreting the word porne in a different manner than most of the translators today, that it was used in in the New Testament after the Septuagint to describe a tavern keeper, a woman who kept the tavern. And in support of this, I'm going to read the same account from the historian Josephus in Antiquities, Book 5, Chapter 1, Paragraph 2. Now, when he had pitched his camp, the spies came to him immediately, well, well acquainted with the whole state of the Canaanites. For at first, before they were at all discovered, they took a full view of the city of Jericho without disturbance, and saw which parts of the walls were strong and which parts were otherwise, and indeed which parts of the wall—I'm sorry—and indeed insecure, and which of the gates were so weak as might afford an entrance to their army. Now those that met them took no notice of them when they saw them, and supposed they were only strangers, talking about the spies that Joshua sent to Jericho, who used to be very curious in observing everything in the city, and did not take them for enemies. But at evening they retired to a certain inn that was near to the wall, where they went to eat their supper, which supper, when they they had done, and were considering how to get away, information was given to the king as he was at supper, that there were some persons come from the Hebrews' camp to view the city as spies, and that they were in the inn kept by Rahab, and were very solicitous that they might not be discovered. So he he sent immediately some to them and commanded to catch them and bring them to him that he might examine them by torture and learn what their business was there. As soon as Rahab understood that these messengers were coming, she hid the spies under stalks of flax which were laid to dry on the top of her house and said to the messengers that were sent by the king, that certain unknown strangers had supped with her a little before sunsetting and were gone away, who might easily be taken. And the point is that Josephus believed that Rahab was an innkeeper. And, and that is the way Josephus interpreted the Hebrew words zun and, and zonah in, in this manner. The stalks of flax are significant. Because an innkeeper would need a lot of linen, would he not? Or would she not? An, an innkeeper has to be sort of, um, if, if, there's no, if, if there's no mafia-run linen supply company in town, she'd have to make her own, wouldn't she?
1: Well, and tablecloths, too.
0: Absolutely. Tablecloths. And she probably
1: in. had some of the best linen sheets and, and uh, linen tablecloths that you could find.
0: Right, bed linen would be very important, and 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 that's the way that porné should be interpreted. And even in my translation of the New Testament, I literally translated the word as as a as a harlot. And and I didn't really study the matter before I did my New Testament translation, and I didn't have all of this information. But now that I do, it's clear to me that that's the way the word should be interpreted that Rahab was not a harlot in, in that sense of the word. She was an innkeeper.
1: There's a footnote under underneath uh, that. Uh, you, you didn't quote the whole thing there, but it's not necessary. Uh, the footnote says, Nor was Josephus himself of any other opinion or practice as I shall remark in the note on Antiquities 9, uh, 4, 3, uh, and observe that I still call this woman Rahab an innkeeper, not a harlot, uh, the whole history, both in our copies and especially in Josephus implying no more. Josephus himself uses the term harlot eight times, but not a single occurrence in the reference to Rahab.
0: Right, and this is William Whiston, the translator of Josephus, a man also learned in scriptures who believed Josephus' account that Rahab was actually an innkeeper and not a harlot. And Adam Clark in his commentary cites um, several instances, and and he cites from Herodotus that there is a, you know that there is a tradition in Egypt and other parts of the Near East that women were commonly innkeepers, and, and I can actually add to that. Adam Clark did not cite the Epic of Gilgamesh, but I know, and anybody who reads the Epic of Gilgamesh would know that there were there was a a well a famous woman innkeeper um, described in that epic. That, that it was common in the old world for women to be innkeepers. It was actually a common profession for them. That certainly wasn't limited to men. So, what do we have? Um, Tamar was not a whore, as, as most believe that she was, and, and Rahab was probably an innkeeper and not a whore at all. So, not everything in the Bible... In the English translations, which have been passed down to us, are, are as it appears. We can move on and, and talk about Ruth. Well, uh,
1: before we get through with Tamar, uh, this is one of the things that uh, British Israel doesn't do so well on either. And uh, in Merits and Shortcomings of British Israel, number one, uh, I, I was quoting W.H. Uh, Poole, Poole's writings, and and he said this, as to the admixture of races, we do well to note what was forbidden and what was allowed. For very good reason, the Ammonites and the Moabites were utterly forbidden. The offspring of an alliance with them was not to be naturalized even to the tenth generations. The Edomite, uh, on the other hand, could be admitted in the third generation because He was a descendant of uh, Jacob's brother, Deuteronomy uh, 23. Uh, Also, the offspring of an Egyptian alliance could be admitted in the third generation. He must not forget that uh, Joseph married an Egyptian wife. Uh, Their two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the objector would call half-breeds, and would be troubled, no doubt, about calling them Israelites, but we find they were uh, recognized at once as belonging to the Honorable Twelve and were also included and so recorded and especially blessed. We must also remember that in the geography of our Lord, a Rahab, uh, a Canaanite Gentile woman of Jericho, was, uh, required and a Ruth, a Moabite heathen was permitted. Uh, if so, and so it is, this objection cannot amount to much. I cannot here enlarge, nor is it necessary. End of quote. Uh, so you see, uh, British Israel, evidently, the, the, the greater part of them teach that, uh, uh, Rahab uh, was a, um, what did I say here? She was a Gentile, and uh, that, that Ruth was a Moabite.
0: Right, and it could be established that Rahab was neither. She was actually, probably using that scarlet thread, was a symbol of the tribe yeah, that of Sarah Judah.
1: That's important to mention that, because uh, we're, we're instructed as Bible students, when we run onto a subject, it's important to go to where that subject is first mentioned and the scarlet thread is, is uh, mentioned at the birth of uh, Perez and Zerah.
0: Right, and there's a, few, there's a few things concerning the land of Canaan and, and the captivity of the, the Israelites in Egypt that most Bible students don't understand. First, before the exodus of the Hebrews, The Egyptians were in political control of most of the land of Canaan. The the port cities of Canaan were all under Egyptian control. Most of the cities in Canaan were either under direct Egyptian control or had been paying homage to the pharaoh of Egypt. This is well established in inscriptions. The, the Hebrews, by destroying the land of the by destroying the Canaanites and taking the land of Canaan, were actually taking it from the Egyptians as well, because the Egyptians had political control of that region. Another thing that that Bible scholars don't understand is that it's very clear from from history and from later scripture that the children of Israel, although the bulk of them were enslaved in Egypt, during their sojourn in Egypt, they didn't stay entirely contained to Egypt. They, there were some of them spread throughout the Egyptian world. The Danans were engaged in sea trade for the Egyptians. They had visited Greece. They, they had been, long been in, in all of the Egyptian ports of call overseas because the Egypt was an empire and it was spread throughout the, the Mediterranean, like any other empire or like any other great nation, would have trade with all of its surrounding peoples. They, they weren't this little backwards outpost in the desert in Egypt and, and living in a vacuum. And, and there would have been Israelites, such as Rahab, spread wherever the Egyptians were. And and a lot of people in identity don't understand that. They think that the Bible exists in a vacuum, separate from the rest of the world around it, and and that's absolutely not true. In fact, the truth is exactly the opposite.
1: You know, there's another uh, factor on Rahab that should be considered. Uh, Being that she would have been of the tribe of Zerah Judah, she would would have a royal background. So uh, her being in the line of Christ... Uh, uh, Christ would, uh, uh, you know, he's basically from Perez through the father's line, but but he's also royal through Rahab.
0: Absolutely, and and all of um, well, I I wouldn't imagine that every single one of Christ's ancestors were of the tribe of Judah, but Rahab and her scarlet thread surely do indicate. Her using that as a symbol that she was of the tribe of the Scarlet Thread, which was the Zara portion of, of Judah.
1: Now, how she ended up in Jericho, I, I don't know.
0: But well, the Trojans weren't contained to Troy. The Trojans that descended from Zara Judah weren't contained to Troy. And the not the entire tribe of Zara left Egypt to found the city known later as Troy. Because we have people of the tribe of Zara in the Exodus that are listed in the book of Numbers. However, the notable sons of the tribe of Zara who are compared to Solomon in, in wisdom, they are not in the Exodus. They are actually not even in the Hebrew scriptures except for where we find that these men are compared to Solomon in wisdom and therefore they must be great men and they're mentioned in the Book of Chronicles, and they're mentioned in One Kings, and the only other mentions of them anywhere in ancient records are in Greek records, because they're the men that founded the Greek and Trojan cities. And and namely, and I'm talking about Darda and Calcol, who were who in the Greek poets. The Greek poets wrote about these men as, as the founders of Pamphylia and Troy. And, and the tribe of Zara didn't live in a vacuum either. The, it's very plausible that Jericho being under the political control of the Egyptians and the children of Israel dwelling in a land with the Egyptians for several hundred years, that there would be some Israelites in some of these cities that had been so long either paying homage or, to or under the control of the Egyptians. That only makes sense. In, in, in other words, let's, let's, let's think about it this way. The Irish came to this country, I mean there were Irish here from the beginning and during the revolution, but I mean most of the Irish came to this country that are here only in the 1870s did the greater portion of the Irish people who were here come to this country. And from the 1870s to the 1970s, well, wherever you find American embassies, wherever you find an American presence in the world, you'll find Irish people, people of Irish descent who are Americans. So if the Americans have a base in the Philippines, you're going to find people who descended from the Irish who came here in the 1870s on that base in the Philippines. Is that not true? Yeah. And if the Americans are running the Panama Canal in the 1970s, and in the 1870s, Irishmen came here, some of those Irishmen who were Americans in the Panama Canal zone are going to be there. are are going to be descended from those Irish in the 1870s who came here. So in other words, the Israelites go to Egypt and a hundred years later, we find Israelites in places that Egypt has political influence or political control. That's only normal. I, I mean, that's a normal pattern. Is that not true? Is that not reasonable? So Wherever we find Egyptian presence in cities or, or cities subject to the Egyptians, we're going to find, very likely, Israelites who had been in Egypt.
1: But mm-hmm. well, there's another thing about Rahab that uh, I find interesting. She she evidently having, uh, being in the flax business and uh, and and what that would entail, you know, being in linen and and uh, uh, running an inn and all that. She was willing to give that up, uh, uh, and she made made her deal with the spies uh, that they were to save her and her family. She gave that all up.
0: Right. She was absolutely inspired by Yahweh and absolutely knew that the handwriting was on the wall. And, and these had to be, even though she, she had been away from them, evidently, for quite some time, and maybe even born outside of the, the, um, the, the presence of the nation in, in Egypt. Because her, her parents had been in, in Jericho with her. And they may have sojourned away from the Israelites in Egypt and settled in Jericho to operate a business there. And, and that probably happened with Israelites all the time, over over the 200 years or 300 years that they were in Egypt. I'm not sure of the exact, it, it was at least, um, I think, six generations that they were in Egypt.
1: Well, if uh, Rahab would have been a Canaanite or some other race, she would have had no interest in anything of Israel.
0: Uh, Absolutely not.
1: She would to turned those spies in in a second.
0: But she absolutely knew that, that they were men sent, and Yahweh was protecting them, and Yahweh was with them, and Yahweh was delivering the land into the hands of the Israelites. And and Rahab, even though she may not have had any personal affinity with the children of Israel, knew that she, she had to be an Israelite because she's using this Israelite symbol, and, and she's sympathetic to, to the children of Israel. There's no doubt that she wasn't an Israelite. Not, not to anybody who would actually study the scripture and, and believe the word of God.
1: Then you wanted to go, what was the next woman you wanted to go to?
0: The next one in, in the chronological story is Ruth. Ruth, the, Moab, the so-called Moabite. And and I think that you probably have a lot to say about Ruth. I think we... You know, there's maybe.
1: a lot to be said there, and it's... Um... It's a situation that uh, few people seem to be, uh, be able to get a handle on, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I would I would say offhand, you know, well, the reason I got into this thing about Ruth, uh, there was a lady uh, in the British Isles over there uh, wrote uh, wrote she was a follower of uh, Armstrong. Uh, and of course she, she doesn't follow him any longer, and you know who she is, and I know you know, know her also. Uh, but she sent me some stuff, uh, where, um, i it, it's out of, uh, what's called the prophetic notebook number 12, whatever that is. Uh, but, but she told me in the letter that, uh, uh, she was sending me some stuff uh Armstrong material and uh uh in these about four pages of stuff here uh there's a person that they're criticizing and this person uh put forward a, uh, a real good argument that tr- uh, Ruth was an Israelite and uh and they took uh this uh, source uh this prophetic notebook number twelve took exception to that and tried to do everything they could to show that uh, uh, Ruth was was actually a Moabite, and um, so I, I think this is, I think this teaching is coming from uh, the followers of uh, Armstrong or. Uh, being that they've broken up into so many splinter groups, it's just hard telling where she might have got this material that she sent me uh, the person the person that uh um, uh stood up for uh ruth uh, uh was was in uh, the initials of t j via email so it was evidently an email that was sent one one time that they quoting from, uh, which they didn't like. And, uh, uh but after, after studying the material that uh, she sent me there, I realized that we have to break down Ruth, uh, into, um, uh, three different, uh, the story of Ruth. We, we have to, uh, um, no, that was the, the Moabites, uh, We're on Ruth, I'm sorry, I'm getting back on the, uh, uh, oh yeah, we're talking about Ruth here now, uh, uh, being accused of being a Moabite. To study the Moabites, uh, uh, we have to study Judges 11 and uh, 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 verses 17-18, and it speaks about Edom and uh, Moab, and, and then... The Amorites at um, Judges 11:19 through 22, uh, Israel defeated the Am- uh, the not Ammonites, Amorites, uh, I should say. Uh, the Israelites defeated the Amorites there.
0: Right. Maybe I should read Judges 11:17 through 22. Then Israel sent messages under the king, messengers under the king of Edom, saying, "Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land." But the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. And in like manner they sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent, and Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness, and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came by the east side of the land of Moab, and pitched on the other side of Arnon, which is the river Arnon. It's a river which divides the land of Moab north and south but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. So we see here that it says Arnon was the actual border of the land of Moab. But we see that when we read the biblical accounts elsewhere in Joshua and and in Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's evident that even though this states Arnon was the border of the land of Moab, that the land of Moab as commonly called, has exceeded this border. And I'll I'll continue to read. And verse 19, And Israel sent messages unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land into my place. So they, they went around Edom, and they went around Moab, and they crossed the Arnon, into what is here called the land of the Amorites. But Sahan trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Sahan gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Yahweh, God of Israel, delivered Sahan and all his people into the hand of Israel, and Israel smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites the inhabitants of that country, and they possessed all the coasts of the Amorites from Arnon even unto and Jabbok, which is to the north of Arnon, which is the northern, um, it's north of the land of Moab, even to the Jordan. So now Yahweh God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel And shouldest thou possess it? And what's going on here is that the Moabites had actually inhabited a land far, which extended far beyond the river Arnon to the north. The river Arnon is here called the northern border of the land of Moab. However, before the Amorites came, the land of Moab extended far to the north of this, into the what's called the plains of Moab in the Book of Numbers. And that was all considered the land of Moab at one time, until the Amorites came and pushed the Moabites south of the River Arnon and took that land for themselves. Is that not what happened?
1: Um, I, I'll read a portion from the... Um Interpreter's uh, Dictionary of the Bible is volume K to Q. Uh, it's on, found on page 14, and it, it kind of explains uh, what was happening there. Shortly before the Israelite arrival uh, in Transjordan, Sihon, a king of the Amorites, had defeated the previous king of Moab, Numbers 21:26 and appropriate, uh, appropriated the north section of the Moabite territory as far as the Arnon uh, we do not know precise the precise extent of Moab before Sion's conquest but it must have been and must have reached far enough north to include the plains of Moab
0: right so the plains of Moab are to the north of the river Arnon. And, and we're talking about the land to the east of the Dead Sea, of the Salt Sea.
1: And, and the scripture that, uh, that uh, backs up this uh, thing of um, the Amorites uh, absorbing the Moabites is found at uh, Numbers 21:26 26 uh, for Hishborn was the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all of his land out of his hand, even unto Arnon.
0: Right, which means that the Moabites only then governed the land south of the river Arnon. And that's the land... That land which is south of the river Arnon, which lay between the river Arnon and the land of the Edomites, is mentioned in Deuteronomy 2.9 and 2.29. And it says, And Yahweh said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar unto the children of Lot for a possession. And that R describes the land south of the Arnon, the Arnon River. As the, and, and the Israelites never did take possession of that land. But they did take possession of the land north of the Arnon River. And they didn't, even though that was called the land of Moab, it, the Israelites took it not from the Moabites, they took it from the Amorites, who had already taken it from the Moabites? Is that not true? That's not what the—that's exactly what the Interpreter's Bible is saying. Correct?
1: Uh, r- right. Uh, uh, this all happened before the Israelites ever come into the Transjordan area. Uh, the uh, the Amorites had um, uh, fought against uh, the Moabites and taken taken a, a good share of land. Uh, and, you know, as described, uh, uh, as, as you uh, mentioned it there. And, and see, the, the thing of it is, that land was formerly, that the Amorites took was formerly a land of Moab at one time, and that's the land that Ruth came out of.
0: Right. Even though the Israelites took it from the Amorites, the portion north of the river Arnon, it was still continued to be called the land of Moab, and it contained the very land called the plains of Moab, which we see in Numbers chapter 26, where the census was taken of the children of Israel. The second census in the book of Numbers was taken of the children of Israel. Uh,
1: This is a portion uh, about Ruth that uh very few Bible students understand. Camperé did a fairly good job uh, on his article where he said uh, Ruth was an Israelite. And, uh, but in a way, he didn't quite make it clear that uh, the Amorites had first uh, absorbed some of the Moabites and then the Israelites uh, destroyed the uh, destroyed the amorites and the and the moabites that they had absorbed
0: right it's 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 not well understood the, the amorites came into this land which even though it's not it it's beyond the land which, which Yahweh had promised Moab could keep and that's the land of har which is south of the river arnon that the amorites came into land inhabited by the moabites that extended well to the north of the river Arnon beyond what Yahweh promised them. And, and the Amorites came and slew those Moabites and, and, and raped their women and absorbed their women and, and children or whatever, and, and took that land from them.
1: And Ezra, Ezra uh, one nine one, one uh, when he lists the uh, ten Canaanite nations, uh, he includes the uh, uh, Moabites,
0: Right, well, it's, it's along
1: with the Amorites,
0: it's not really mentioned in in the Old Testament before Ezra, but it's clear from apocryphal literate, literature that the Moabites did mingle with all of the races of the Canaanites
1: and and, and that, I'm sure at the incident at ba Peor that uh uh by that time, the, the uh, Moabites had mixed with the Canaanites, and that see uh, Paul, uh, when he spoke of the incident, uh, he called it fornication, and, and
0: uh, which clearly uh, it means that it was race mixing
1: It's race mixing,
0: definitely. And That's the way Paul saw it. Paul of Tarsus, and that's in in one Corinthians chapter ten.
1: So this this definitely shows that. Ruth was a Moabite only by geographic area.
0: Well, absolutely, and, and there's more ways than that to show it. But it shows that, you know, throughout the Old Testament, the children of Israel are constantly referring to each other by their geography. And, and for example, um, David is called in one place an Ephrathite meaning a man of or a person of Ephrath. And we know from the book of Genesis that Ephrath is the name of the land of Bethlehem before the Israelites started calling the place Bethlehem, that it was called Ephrath. Is that not correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and
0: David's called an Ephrathite in a couple of places in Scripture after his, you know, the place where he grew up, just like um, I'm called the New Yorker and And because i'm I'm living in New York, and you might be called an Ohio in because you, a Buckeye, <laughs> yeah, a Buckeye, because you're living in Ohio, but that doesn't mean that Buckeye is running through your veins, German blood's running through your veins, even though you've never been to Germany and that's that's been our pitfall, our pitfall since the time of ruth at, at least and, and even further back than that that we identify ourselves with geography rather than with our actual race and and that's always gone on we've always done that it, it's all, all the way back in the Bible and, and in all of our histories and our books and, and our cultures that we identify each, we identify ourselves with geography rather than race we're always making that mistake There's, um, concerning Ruth Ruth goes to the land of I'm sorry Naomi and her family go to the land of Moab and Ruth marries one of Naomi's sons and the sons die actually she has two sons that die so Naomi has no sons that can redeem Ruth and Naomi brings Ruth back to the land of Judah where she came from and gets one of her other near kinsman, Boaz, to redeem Ruth. But there's one other kinsman which is closer in in kinship to Naomi than Boaz does. And it's his turn, his opportunity first, to perform the redemption, right? That's the role of kinsman-redeemer. And I'm going to read from Ruth 4, chapter 4, verses 5 through 8 from the king james then boaz said what day thou buyest the field of the hand of naomi now boaz is talking to the kinsman who is nearer to naomi than he is and whose turn it is first to redeem ruth what day thou buyest the field of the hand of naomi thou must buy it also of ruth the moabitess the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. In other words, to raise seed for the name of the dead by impregnating Ruth as a kinsman redeemer is supposed to do in Israel. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. In other words, he didn't have enough money to, to be able to redeem Ruth to pay for the field and and to support Ruth lest I mar my own inheritance redeem thou my right to thyself in other words he's telling Boaz to redeem her because he cannot redeem it and he says I cannot redeem it and then verse 7 now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning meaning in 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 former time, meaning not that they don't do it anymore, for they're certainly still practicing it, but meaning that it's, it's been done for a long time. Concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman, the one who could not redeem it, said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee, so he drew off his shoe. To fully understand this, we must go back to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, where it says, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her. And by brother, that also means any near kinsman. It could mean a first cousin or an uncle or or whatever kinsman is near. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother who is dead, that his name not be put out of Israel. And, and this is the important part right here. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife go to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe off from his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Now this is a serious reproach to a man who cannot redeem his dead kinsman's wife. And Ruth could not be redeemed in this manner by he who is closest in kin to Naomi. And this man, this unnamed kinsman in the book of Ruth, would have to have had undergone this serious reproach because he couldn't afford to redeem Ruth. Now, since we see that it is a public and open disgrace for this man to shirk the responsibility of a kinsman-redeemer, and it is wholly evident from Ruth, versus Chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, that these men were indeed operating under the law, and they even cited this law, this man could easily have avoided such a disgrace if Ruth were a Moabitess by race. All he would have had to do was cite the text a little above the law, this particular law, in verse twenty-three, three of Deuteronomy. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to their 10th generation, they shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. This clearly proves that Ruth was an Israelite living in the land of Moab. Because this first kinsman could have easily avoided this public reproach that he had to undergo simply by quoting the law. And they were following the law. What do you think about that, Clifford?
1: Well, I, I think it's right on the money. Uh, there's no possible way that Ruth could have been a Moabite.
0: Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, that... Uh, it's anybody, not...
1: anybody that, uh, when they read Ruth and, and don't see that, they they're not really... Researching their Bible properly.
0: Absolutely. Ruth was simply a Moabite because she lived in the land of Moab. And two and a half tribes of Israel stayed on the other side of the Jordan.
1: And where, what were those tribes now? That was Gad was one. and Reuben. Uh, half the tribe of Manasseh.
0: Yes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And Ruth had to be from one of those tribes. She had to be from Reuben, from Gad, or from half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, it was Reuben who occupied that land, actually. That land north of the River Arnon fell to Reuben. But Manasseh also occupied land that was considered part of the plains of Moab, where the children of Israel were numbered. And anybody who lived in that land after that time, who was an Israelite would have been called a Moabite because they identified each other by geography. Once they all moved into the into their borders, they called each other after geography quite often rather than after tribe. Saul, isn't Saul the king called a Kishite or a Cushite, a, a a Kishite in some places, I I believe, and and he was a man of Benjamin. It it happened all the time in scripture. Do you have anything to add to the story of Ruth Clinton?
1: Well, I uh, not not offhand. <laughs> uh I you know, I've written uh, written quite about uh, uh, uh about this subject, you know, in various lessons and uh uh I've made a lot of comments, uh, I think I'm going to have to update my comments, so because uh, I I, I can see even, you know, even though I've probably done well in the past, I I think I can still make these things clearer than what I have in the past.
0: Right. Well, the point that I raise about the the near kinsmen being able to escape the reproach simply by quoting the law, if indeed Ruth was a Moabite, that That wasn't raised by Compare. I don't think that's been raised before i I, I don't seen,
1: remember him raising that uh, he, he might have but I, I don't remember it
0: yeah, I don't think he raised it i I think he only tried to explain that Ruth was a mole by by um geography because the children of Israel clearly occupied that area however it it's um that's that's the second witness I believe that man could have easily avoided that that reproach and that disgrace. I wrote a
1: critical note uh, under uh, uh article, you know, Ruth was an uh, uh, Israelite, you know, and, and I, I wrote this, to understand the chronological order of events, one must first fathom that, firstly, Thion, king of the Amorites, had conquered and occupied the kingdom of Moab. Uh, of course, that was not the whole kingdom, and that's uh, I, I probably in, in the note there should be corrected. Secondly, that Sion uh, had absorbed the Moabites. Israel destroyed both the Amorites as well as the Moabites whom Sion had conquered and brought under his control under his rule. How absurd then is the fault claim made by the incompetent wannabe Bible teachers that Ruth was a racial Moabite.
0: Right. And wasn't it, one of your your points here was that um, this worldwide Church of God, these Armstrong people, actually claimed that the Israelites never occupied any portion of the land called the land of Moab? Yeah. uh,
1: There was a conclusion made here, and of course they try to twist these words up a little. A conclusion. The only possible conclusion to be drawn from these uh, decisive facts is that the plains of Moab and the fields or country of Moab was never uh, a part of the territory promised to Israel or given to them for possession or else our creator is a liar and scripture is utterly false. Uh, and... and uh, those two-and-a-half tribes asked for that that particular land, and it was given to them.
0: Right, and it's very clear, and, and I'm going to refute that, that stand by the Armstrong people by citing one verse. Um, in Judges chapter 11, verse 26, and, and I'm going to read it, And now art thou any better, anything better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel, or did he ever fight against them, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and in Arur and her towns, and in all the cities that be along by the coasts of Arnon, which means that the land north of the river Arnon, which was formerly belonging to the people of Moab, 300 years why, therefore, did you not recover them within that time? In other words, the Moabites came forth with a claim to this land, and the Israelites refuted saying, hey, we've already lived here in the, this land, which was theirs, for 300 years. So yeah,
1: the made that, that point, too.
0: Right, so the Armstrong people are clearly liars and deceivers in this manner. The worldwide church of God is the worldwide church of That should be absolutely evident by anybody who actually... Well,
1: Stephen M. Collins, he's trying to assimilate uh, every unclean race into the Israelites.
0: Yeah, well, Stephen M. Collins himself is an unclean person. He is a man of mixed blood. He is one-fourth Jewish.
1: I never heard that... uh...
0: Uh, that's I've I've heard Stephen M. Collins is one fourth Jewish. I I mean I might have him confused uh-huh. with somebody else, but I've heard that he had a Jewish grandparent.
1: You know that might account for what he's teaching them.
0: I, I I believe so. I I mean I might be wrong, but I've heard that he has a Jewish grandparent. Unless I have him confused with Stephen Jones, I do that quite often. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that St- Stephen Jones. I don't think I, – I mean, he has a brother that's a, a pretty solid individual, does he not?
1: Yeah, yeah, so right. I
0: don't think I'm confusing him. For, I think it's Stephen Collins I've heard is one-fourth Jewish. And if anybody can fill me in on that and correct me on that or, or inform me on that, I, I would like to know that because I have heard it. So Stephen and and M. Collins... anybody who's polluted would seek to pollute – to to make people that are polluted in race – They want to make God in their image. So they would hope that the Israelites were polluted, because if polluted Israelites are accepted by Yahweh, then they would hope that they're accepted by Yahweh.
1: Well, if it's true that Collins is is, is part Jewish, uh, that's why he has a website, uh, The Jews Are Judah.
0: Absolutely. I've heard that Stephen Collins is part Jewish. Uh, I would like to, If anybody had further information on that, I would be glad to be informed about that.
1: Well, Stephen M. Collins. Or correct
0: it if I'm wrong.
1: Stephen M. Collins' mailing address is Post Office Box 88735, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, zip code 57109 for anybody that wants to get in contact with him.
0: Now, the last person on my list, now that hopefully we've explained it, Ruth was certainly not a Moabite. Ruth was absolutely an Israelite and the book of Ruth proves it. When compared to the law in Deuteronomy, which the people um, which which speak in the book of which are quoted in the book of Ruth actually cite in the book of Ruth. Now we can move on to Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the so-called Hittite. What do, what do we think about Bathsheba? Um, do you have anything to say about Bathsheba? Bathsheba was actually seduced by David, the king, while her husband was away at battle, and and he impregnated her.
1: Well, you know, I've often wondered why the prophet uh, condemned uh, David for that if Uriah was a Hittite. But I've never. I've. I. I. That's one of uh, the things that is on my to-do list. And uh, I've never, I, I've, I've been wanting to check about this Horite ho- business. If you have anything uh, on that, I'd, I'd be happy for you to make it clear.
0: Right. What I'm going to say is that many esteem Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, to be a Hittite, to have been a Hittite herself. And if not, if she was not a Hittite, they esteem her to have been an adulteress because she was married to a Hittite. But was Uriah really a Hittite? The word Hittite, or kitty, according to Strong's Concordance, coordinates, is indeed derived from Heth, and was used to describe his descendants. However, it is also identical to a form of the word kittith, a word related to kitty, which means fear. A person who was fearsome could be indeed described as a Hittite in 2 Samuel 23 1 Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of the 37 mighty men whom David had even after his death all of the biblical testimony concerning Uriah proves that he was anything but an accursed Hittite and instead he was a just and faithful servant whom David was actually unfaithful to. The account of his attitude and behavior, given it to Samuel chapter 11, verses 9 to 11, is especially noteworthy. Having died on the front lines of battle, Uriah surely lived up to his epithet. Once it is properly interpreted, Uriah the Terrible. That's what the word Hittite would mean as an adjective, Uriah the Terrible. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, 6-11. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Or as I would translate the word, Uriah the Terrible. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when David, I'm sorry, and when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house, and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. In other words, David sent him some food. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord, meaning David, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest not thou, from, thou not from thy journey? Why then did not did thou not go down to unto thy house? I'm sorry, I'm tripping over this archaic King James language. Why then didn't you go down to your house? Is what's being said. And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents and my lord joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields shall i then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest and as thy soul liveth i will not do this thing in other words the rest of the army was sleeping out in the field the ark was still in the hands of the enemy so uriah was too noble to go down and enjoy the comforts of his home while his his compadres, his kinsmen, his fellow soldiers, his his general, were all still out in the field. That doesn't sound like something a Canaanite would do to me.
1: Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that need to know that. You know, I, I've, I've never been able to really uh, um, do any research on that to prove that uh, – that uh, Uriah was something other than a Hittite, but I've always suspected that there was a problem, either in translation or something.
0: Well, right, and Hittite, I I would assert it was an epithet. It's identical to this word. It, it's um the the word as an adjective has one more letter has has the the th or the tav letter at the end of it. However, at, in As a noun, it would be the same identical word, Hittite. Uriah the Terrible is what he is being called as an epithet. Because the man is obviously a great warrior, he's listed as one of of David's 37 mighty men, it would only be natural for him to have such an epithet.
1: Well, that also clears up why the prophet uh, was so hard on David then.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. This man was an Israelite. He was one of David's mighty men. And he was called Uriah the Hittite because he was Uriah the Fearsome.
1: Yeah, we have men like that today.
0: <laughs> well, we have a few have like that, but not too many.
1: <laughs> Most of them have been f- uh, feminized.
0: Yeah, most of them are Uriah the Hittites. Um, Uriah was a was a Hittite. Uriah was the fearsome. He was a a man who was a warrior to be odd, and that's why he has the epithet.
1: Well, that's news to me, and and I'm glad to find it out.
0: Anything else to say about these women in the genealogy of Christ? Did we miss anything or or uh, have you
1: have you covered them all now?
0: I believe so. Yeah.
1: Um, well there's 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 an, an awful lot to say say about all of them as far as that goes. Uh,
0: uh Well, as far as I'm concerned, uh um, the women of of Matthew, the women that Matthew mentions in the genealogy of Christ have all been retrieved from the slanders pasted upon them or, or given them by the Judeo-Christians. Tamar was an upright woman who, who used cunning to get what she had coming from Judah, and Judah recognized it as righteous. Rahab was a woman, almost certainly an Israelite, who understood from Yahweh that Jericho was given into the hands of Israel, and she cooperated and worked with Israel to that effect. Ruth was a woman of either the tribes of Reuben or Manasseh, we will never know, but she was certainly an Israelite woman living in the land of Moab, and the book of Ruth proves that.
1: And and Ruth never said uh, your God will be my God.
0: Right, and I'm, I'm sorry I forgot that, and I actually had it in my notes. That word is Elohim. It means judges, and Ruth tells Naomi, your judges will be my judges. She 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 left. It was the period of the judges. The judges were the rulers in Israel. The judges looked out for widows and a rightful judge. Looked out for widows and children who were orphaned, and, and Naomi volunteers to go, I mean, Ruth volunteers to go with her mother-in-law Naomi and to, to forsake her land, the land of her fathers, the land of her, the the authority of her judges, and to subject herself to, to, um, to, to Naomi's kinsmen in, in the land of Judah. That's very clear. Your judges will be my judges, is what she should be saying.
1: And I think of all these song, uh, songs that's uh, sung at weddings, you know, and and, and usually they "Your God will be my God," you know, and, and it's 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 completely out of context.
0: Absolutely. And and finally, Bathsheba was not a Hittite nor a race mixer because Uriah was Uriah the Terrible. Uriah, the great warrior, Uriah the fearsome, but not Uriah the Hittite. And that's all I I have to say on the matter. I don't know if you could add anything, or or if we should. Um...
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of other women that uh, in the Bible uh, that they consider as Gentiles or you know non non Israelites, and and Joseph's uh, uh, wife Asniath, uh, uh the Bible is clear that she was um, given to uh, given by the Pharaoh, uh, and and she was uh, the daughter of the priest of On. Now, On in the Bible before it was called On was called Beth Shemesh, and 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 that would be House of Shem.
0: Yes, it, it would actually be the house of the people of Shem, and it means also the house of the sun. However, that's a double entendre. It's it's a phrase which has two different meanings, and it's the same either way in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And, and Shem is the light of the world, so it only makes sense that his name would also mean the sun.
1: Yeah, all all of those patriarchs had uh, pure wives. Uh, they were not they were not heathen wives.
0: Absolutely not. And Asenath and, and her sons were immediately accepted by Jacob. And Jacob surely knew the consequences of, of intermarrying with the other races.
1: And and Joseph's wife, Zipporah. Uh, 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 now, Asenath was not under the covenant, nor was Zipporah. But when they married into the Israelites, uh, their children would come under the covenant.
0: Absolutely. And that's
1: why Manasseh and Ephraim are under the covenant.
0: And we're both blessed by Jacob. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, uh, Jacob would have never blessed, uh, 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 you know, somebody else
0: if if, Mana- if
1: Manasseh and uh, No, Ephraim Jacob knew the
0: fate of his brother Esau and why he forsook his birthright. Yeah. Jacob understood that.
1: Uh, He would have never blessed them if it had been half-breeds?
0: Absolutely not. The Bible tells us who the people were that weren't any good, and it tells us time and again. And if the Bible doesn't specifically tell us that somebody's not any good, then we have to accept that they're good, because the Bible itself, Scripture itself, accepted those people.
1: And Christ And, Christ was perfect racially, all the way from Adam, you know, right down the line. There is no admixture of any kind uh, in his bloodline.
0: Absolutely. We're told that he was perfect and without spot. And we're constantly told in the Old Testament scriptures that people of mixed race do have spots and and can't be perfect.
1: And and, uh, when they were doing all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, every sacrifice had to be perfect. And every priest that offered the sacrifice had to, had to be perfect, uh, physical specimen. Absolutely. Because because that was a foreshadow of Christ's coming.
0: Absolutely. And and that you're right. A Levite couldn't even if he had a blemish on his body, he couldn't even serve in the temple. He could serve outside of the temple, but he couldn't serve the sacrifices in the temple. Right. So that's and so not that open. that
1: tells us right there that Christ was was perfect racially. He had no uh, bad, bad blood in him at all.
0: Absolutely whoever. not. And Ruth was a good Israelite woman, and so was Rahab, and so was Tamar, and and so was Bathsheba. No doubt whatsoever. And anybody that thinks that there is any doubt is is basically denying Scripture and and nay saying Scripture. Okay, I'm going to end this installment of um, The Voice of Christian Israel. This is William Fink and and Clifton Emma Heiser, and Eli will be here with me Friday night on the Crystal Geno Show and on Saturday on Yahweh's Covenant People. And Saturday we will probably have more than one program because what we plan on doing for Saturday, and it's only preliminary, we've only discussed it, is we have talked about doing our the, – the presentations that we were supposed to do in Binghamton yesterday, we will do on a program next Saturday, and, and we'll probably have an extended schedule because of that. Thank you, everybody. This is William Sink, and good night, or good day. <laughs> Take care, Kristen.
1: Go ahead.